And last, uh, last week, we were in Article 3. We began to deal with um, the topic of the Word of God. So we spoke uh, on the written Word of God, began to speak on issues of the authority of the Word of God, the inspiration of the Word of God. Um, and obviously, uh, when we are dealing with issues of this nature, we need to speak about the canon. So the canonical books of the Holy Scriptures, um, and then, obviously, the authority, the sufficiency of Scripture. So that's the task at hand for tonight. Um, this covers Articles 4 through 7. Um, we're going to try and give um, reading to Articles 4 through 6 <clears throat> tonight. And then we have some uh, texts that we want to share with you to support <clears throat> perhaps a, a way of approaching the canon. How do we, as Reformed Protestants, approach the canon of the Holy Scriptures? Okay. <clears throat> First of all, what does the word canon mean? And the word canon is simply uh, a measuring um, standard. Uh, literally, it means a measuring rod. Uh, it's a rule or a ruler or a standard. So when we're talking about the biblical canon, we're asking, what is that rule? What is the standard? Um, what is the measuring device by which uh, we talk about um, books that are inspired, books that are uh, that pertain under the category of the Word of God, hmm? the inspired scriptures. <clears throat> First of all, let's hear. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> let's hear in Article Four the reading of the canonical books of those books that are comprised in our Bibles as the canon of Scripture. That's Article 4 of the Belgic Confession, and it says, We believe that the Holy Scriptures are contained in two books, namely the Old and New Testaments, which are canonical, against which nothing can be alleged. These are thus named in the church of God. The books of the Old Testament are the five books of Moses, namely Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. <clears throat> five books. This is what the Jews call the Torah, right? And what Jesus, we hear in Luke, called the law. So that division of the five books of Moses, uh, it's the Torah and or the law. <clears throat> the, um, after that, the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the two books of Samuel, the two of the kings, two books of the chronicles, commonly called Paralipomenon, the first of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, the Psalms of David, the three books of Solomon, namely the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, <clears throat> the four great prophets, the four great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They're called great, not because they were the greatest among the prophets, but because of the, the volume of their writing, encompassing themes also, the broad-reaching uh, themes in their prophetic work. And then the twelve, also called the minor prophets, the twelve lesser prophets, namely Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So these are the 66 books of our um, biblical canon. 
Those of the New Testament are <clears throat> the four evangelists, namely Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Acts of the Apostles, the 14 epistles of the Apostle Paul, namely one to the Romans, two to the Corinthians, one to the Galatians, one to the Ephesians, one to the Philippians, one to the Colossians, two to the Thessalonians, two to Timothy, one to Titus, one to Philemon, and one to the Hebrews. The seven, so notice, right? These are the epistles, 14 epistles of the Apostle Paul, right? 14 epistles, letters written by the Apostle Paul. Then he goes on to say here, the seven epistles, the seven epistles of the other apostles, namely one of James, two of Peter, three of John, one of Jude, and the revelation of the apostle John. Okay, so these are the 66 books. Hmm? That's, um, what is it, 2038, right? In the Old Testament and 27 in the New. For a total of um, 66 books um, in the Bible. <clears throat> so these are the canonical scriptures. Obviously, that doesn't mean that these were the only books, obviously, for one, written in antiquity. Or written around this time. Or even written alleging to be from God or to be scripture or on par with these books. So that conversation we began last week, remember? And we said that um, there were other books written after the Old Testament as we have it, as uh, our canonical scriptures as have been mentioned here, there, there are other scriptures, um, other books that were written. And they were written a couple of centuries after uh, the time in which Malachi was written. So that has been called the Apocrypha. Or the hidden. Or the obscure books. Okay? The Apocrypha. Um, these apocry apocryph apocryphal books... Um, were books that have not, were not received by the Jews. So the books of the Old Testament, as we have uh, mentioned here, was the canon that the Jews have received. Um, we know that uh, from history. Um, we know that, for example, one of the historians... Of the Jews, Josephus, he talks about the Jewish canon. And he never ever mentions the Apocrypha as the inspired scripture for the Jews. In addition to that, um, neither Jesus nor the apostles cited from the Apocrypha. Um, so, what is this body of apocryphal books? So, there were books written in the intertestamental period, about a couple of hundred years prior to Christ. Um, and while they may have some value, whether it be historical as the Maccabees, uh, some moral lessons um, in the Ecclesiasticus, uh, some beauty and literary value uh, that resembles what we have in the Old Testament scriptures, they don't rise to the level of inspired scripture. And the Jews never received them. Um, neither did Jesus and the apostles, nor the early fathers as a general rule. So... That's as far as the Old Testament books are. The same applies. The same applies to the New Testament. 
we have the, the Gospels and the letters that we have mentioned here written all within decades of the activity and the life of Jesus and the apostles in this first century. Second part unto the latter part of the, se- of the first century. In the same way that the apocryphal books were written actually hundreds of years after, a couple of hundred years after the canon in Malachi was closed, these other books claiming authority as Christian scriptures were written into the second century. They were not written around the time of... um, the history that was subsequent to the life of Christ and the apostles and the generation that was alive at the time. In light of that, then we have those early fathers writing against them and already countering and defending against the theology of the new gospels, the other gospels, and the other doctrines that were preaching a different Christ of these sects that at first were within the Christian movement and then eventually split off and would create their own groups. So we need to know, right, so that sometimes Christians, you know, in their lack of of knowledge... They may think that these, these are the only books, right, that were circulating. No, there were a lot of books circulating throughout history. Uh, after the time of the Old Testament, there is a span of time in which there's a separation from the canon that we have received. And also, in the New Testament, it also happened like that. Um, <clears throat> You can search in the, um, you know, the internet, and these are topics that are very accessible. And you can see those early fathers, such as uh, Clement, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, Papias, uh, who supposedly was a disciple of Polycarp, the first martyr uh, in that second century that knew the Apostle John, um, Ignatius. um, So all of these figures, they are already testifying of a New Testament canon and never citing and actually beginning to defend against the sects, which came to be identified as either uh, the Gnostics and the many Gnostic heresies that we have talked about. The Marcionites was another one of those groups that rejected the God of the Old Testament and created their own canon of sorts. So that in the writings of these early um, fathers of the church, that's how they have been called, okay, um, you already begin to hear the four Gospels, the Pauline Epistles, the writings of John. And, you know, even though they're not, they're, there isn't a list that is put forward because the process of the transmission of the canon was, took a couple of centuries. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a canon, okay? It doesn't mean that there wasn't a canon, meaning a body of Scripture that was inspired by God, that God revealed and gave to God's people, okay? But it pleased God that it wouldn't drop from heaven in one book. So it may shock you to know that, you know, the Bible with the index and the maps didn't drop like that, (laughs) put together like that. It was scrolls, it was epistles, it was letters, that were being circulated, Um, and throughout time, that that canon, the scriptures that were authentic, that were inspired, that had authority, were recognized by the church as a whole. The reception 
of the corporate church, uh, and the rest came to be discarded. Already in the second century, toward the latter part of the second century, you have one of the first lists, and it's called the Muratorian Canon. So as far as the second century toward that latter part, except for four or five books that were still being disputed in certain regions, or they, they still had questions about and or didn't know, perhaps, you know, as well, um, they are not in that list yet. But uh, in the next couple of centuries, uh, we begin to see uh, this canon formation and transmission uh, shape up in a very definitive way so that in the 4th century, we already have Athanasius listing all the books. Uh, and at the end of that 4th century, in the Council of Carthage in Africa, we have uh, the entirety of the scriptures as we have mentioned them here today. So what have been the standards, so to speak, to, um, you know, to address the issue of canonicity? Um, several, several markers or several, uh, let's say, um, <clears throat> standards to say this is how the canon was received and how it was recognized. <clears throat> Uh, one of those um, was, I'm going to leave what I think is the most meaningful for the end. One of those is that the scriptures that were inspired had apostolic origin and um, supervision or endorsement. So the farther the scriptures that were also being circulated, the books that were being circulated from the apostles, from the companions of the apostles, then they recognized that it was not inspired scripture. So all of the New Testament scriptures come from either apostles, companions of the apostles, or <clears throat> people that were in the milieu, the context of the apostles, and presented in their writings the apostolic message. So that, that was one, um, one, let's say, characteristic of the inspired scriptures by which the church came to recognize the canon. Another one was that eventually the church as a whole came to recognize these books. The church as a whole... Uh, it took a while for different regions to receive them or to know them, to accept them. There may have been disagreements. Um, it wasn't perfect. So this process of recognizing and receiving and transmitting the canon is not perfect. The scriptures are. Bear in mind there is a canon that God knows infallibly. God knows his canon, okay? God knows his inspired word. He reveals them to his people. His people then receive that word. That reception then, it, by the Holy Spirit, it begins to be recognized and begins to be put together as the Holy Scriptures, but that process is not perfect. And it takes, um, it takes a period of time, and it's not also, let's say, infallible in the sense that um, there could have been disagreements in certain regions, certain sections of the church may have accepted uh, some scriptures or, and that others would not accept, but as a whole, eventually... All of the books as we have them here came to be recognized as the inspired word of God from all of uh, Christendom. So notice one, apostolic origin and message. Number two, 
the corporate reception by the church. And number three, the self-authenticating, the self-authenticating quality of the Word of God. And this is what we talked about last week, that the truth has a self-authenticating, a self-validating quality to it. What does that mean? What that means is that it was not a group of people or the church in council in some sort of an assembly that determined these are the authorized books. And this is precisely the beauty, the wonder, and the miracle of it. The Word of God went out and spread out throughout all of the known world, right? From Jerusalem all the way throughout Europe, you know, the Middle East, and the farthest reaches of the empire. There wasn't at any time a community that was controlling the copying, the production, overseeing the writing um, of the New Testament scriptures. Okay? It simply went out um, and it began to be copied, shared, distributed, handled, spread. Okay? <clears throat> and that's how we eventually, the transmission of that canon comes to be, to, uh, to be finalized, um, so to speak. So that unlike the Roman Catholic Church, we do not say that the church determines the canon. That's what the Roman Catholic Church says, that it is the church that determined what the Holy Scriptures were, okay? So we do not say that. What do we say? Well, <clears throat> we say what Article 5 of the Bel Belgian Confession says. Notice what it says. Article 5. From whence the Holy Scriptures derive their dignity and authority... From where, right? Is it from the church? Is it from some learned assembly? From some group of people? It says, We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith, believing without any doubt all things contained in them not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but more especially because the Holy Ghost witnesses in our hearts that they are from God. Whereof they carry the evidence in themselves. They carry the evidence of being from God in themselves. For the very blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are fulfilling. So this is our main uh, argument for the inspiration of the scriptures. That they are self-validating, self-authenticating. Even though we also have all the historical evidence that we just shared in, you know, in summary fashion. You know, the corporate reception of the church, um, the apostolic origin of the books and the message that was apostolic, the early <clears throat> writing of the divine inspired scriptures, the reception of the Old Testament by the Jews and not the other books, the quoting uh, of Jesus and the apostles of these books, etc. Okay? But... As we were saying last week, as it is the nature of a final authority, a final authority must be self-authenticating. A final source of truth cannot be validated by an outside external source. So in this case, the Pope, the Magisterium, right, 
was the final source of authority. <clears throat> and that is why the Roman Catholic Church has recourse ultimately to the infallibility of the Pope as the doctrine and the, the seat of the Pope came to be viewed and his pronouncements could not be questioned. So in eventually in the, um, in the struggles or in the effort of Roman Catholic Church to put down the Reformation, the Reformers never accepted any other books except the ones that we have mentioned here. And some of the, some of the learned people uh, throughout history that were Bible translators that knew the languages, uh, the Greeks and the Hebrews, like Jerome, for example, who translated the, 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 the Old Testament into uh, the Bible into Latin, um, they could uh, see that even though the Apocrypha had a certain value, it was not on par with the Old Testament canon as received by the Jews. Obviously, in the Apocrypha, there are other doctrines that contradict the rest of the Bible. Doctrines such as purgatory, prayers for the dead, that the giving of alms, the giving of money, provides atonement, forgiveness, and things like that. So what does that line up with? It lines up with the Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church, in the Council of Trent, in 1546, they came to accept the Apocrypha uh, as part of uh, the canon. So in every Roman Catholic Church, uh, you're going to see the Apocrypha, as the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal books, or what they call the Deuter, Deuterocanonical, or the Second Canon, they call it, as part of their Bibles. Yeah. Well, obviously, they, they put it between covers, between the, the, the binders right, in a book. So they have it in their Bible. When you open, how do you know that you're handling a, a Roman Catholic Bible? When you open that Bible, at some point, you're going to have what they call the Deuterocanonical books, which it's the second canon. So it, they believe that after Malachi, a couple of centuries later, Revelation continued. And these books were added as part of the canon. Okay? Uh, so they have it in, um, in their Bibles. <clears throat> So, on the basis of all that we have said, and not only is uh, doctrine, biblical doctrine, uh, contradicted, such as salvation by grace alone through faith, you know, it is appointed unto men to die, and then the judgment, the, the, the plain teaching of Scripture uh, on these matters. There's also uh, stories that are, that strike you as downright fables and myths when you read some of these books, okay? Uh, when you compare them to what you have in the Old Testament uh, scriptures, it, they just don't line up. They say, this is, this is like a novel. This is like some sort of a, of a science fiction uh, kind of, uh, of stories that don't, that don't square away. So... <clears throat> Then we go back to that main argument that the scriptures are self-authenticating. It's kind of like when Jesus, um, right, um, told Pilate about the truth. Remember that? And Pilate said, what is the truth? What is the truth? Hmm? And then we hear Jesus tell Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So how do you validate? That's, those are the words of Jesus that become inscripturated. What other source other than that do you go to validate ultimate truth? What do you validate ultimate truth with? 
except for the fact that it is in itself self-validating, self-authenticating. And that goes, I want to submit to you, that goes not just for revealed, revealed um, for special revelation as the Word of God, but even for general revelation. There are certain things that all people take as truth. Why? Because that's the way it is. That's just the way it is, they would say. You know? Because ultimate truth that testifies to someone's conscience, to someone's heart, whether it be from general revelation, and obviously then from special revelation, cannot have a higher over it, um, another over-validating source that stands above and in back of um, the source that we claim for to be final authority. Otherwise, it wouldn't be final, right? That's why we say that it is the scriptures that have final authority. And having final authority, then they are sufficient. They are not only necessary, but sufficient for our salvation. Having shared that, I wanted to expand a little bit on this self-authenticating. What we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is we're going to look at the internal evidence for Scripture, claiming to be Scripture, claiming to be inspired. And how it does that, okay? Uh, but tonight, I want to speak a little bit on this self-authenticating nature of Scripture. And I think it falls um, along the lines of three points. So I got three points for you. Why is Scripture self-validating, self-authenticating? Number one, because it is redemptive. It is redemptive and transforming. In other words, it is by the Scriptures that people come to be redeemed, to be saved, and to be transformed. Nothing but truth and the ultimate source of authority and sufficiency and power could do that. So the Scriptures are redemptive, transformative. They can set you free. Hmm? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It redeems you. It, it, it liberates you. It empowers you. It shapes you. It forms you. It stands over you. We don't stand over it. We don't get to tell Scripture what to do, or to. we don't even interpret Scripture as a matter of first, um, let's say, first um, action of initiative. It is God in the Scriptures that interprets us. When we interpret Scripture, we realize, we come to see that we are being interpreted by God, handled by God. It's not that we handle them. We handle the Scriptures. We interpret them, right? We read them, but we know them. But the reality is that we're actually being interpreted, handled, known by God in and through the power of the truth in the revealed Word of God. Okay? So that's number one. It is redemptive, transformative. And it is redemptive, transformative because, number two, it is Christocentric. So how do we know that the Scripture is self-authenticating, self-validating? Because the Scriptures testify to Christ, to the Son of God. And in testifying to Christ, it reveals the one true God. So the Scriptures does not need anyone over it to authenticate it because it itself reveals Christ, bears the witness of Christ, the Son of God. 
and hence the triune God. The scriptures reveal God. It's a book in which God reveals himself to you. Hence, it's self-authenticating, self-validating nature. And number three, and notice all the, these three points are connected. Number three, it is redemptive, transforming, and Christocentric, revealing Christ in a historical, covenantal framework. So the scriptures address a historical development that reveals the dealings of God with humanity. And the dealings of God with humanity in history have been covenantal. It reveals the covenants of God with humanity. In other words, covenant is a revelation of God that follows God's activity of redemption. Here's the pattern in which God works. God intervenes in history, right? He uh, brings about His acts in history. And then He makes His prophets right about those acts. As we're going to see later on in the for example, the prophet Amos, it says when God does something, He tells His prophets about it. So when God has His prophets write something, it's because He had done something. Or He was about to do something. And what has God done? He has entered into relationship with man, right? Right? And he has done so through covenants, mainly two covenants. The law and, and the, new, the, law and the gospel. <clears throat> or two testaments. To be broader in our language. So in that revelation that is historical of the dealings of God with men, which is redemptive, it's prophetic, literature, prophetic uh, scripture that speaks, that testifies to the significance of the redemptive acts of God. And those redemptive acts of God in history have taken a bi-covenantal fashion. You know, the covenant of works at the beginning and then a republication of that law principle in order to then lead us to the covenant of grace. In that aspect, see, that is the truth of history. It is the truth of God dealings with mankind. And that cannot be validated by anything else except by such a history of revelation and of God dealings with man. So it is self-authenticating because it is redemptive, transformative, because it reveals God, it is Christocentric, and because it is historical, covenantal. Some scriptures. Uh, we already read 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's read it again to get started. 2 Timothy 3. Wow, where's time going? 2 Timothy 3. We read here in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul tells Timothy, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice. The Scriptures can make you wise. For what? For salvation. That is its redemptive, transformative character. Right? And notice that it encompasses not only the Scriptures of the Old Testament, but also the revelation of Christ uh, in, it, in, in the Old Testament and also in its fulfillment in the New Testament. Because... Timothy knew the Old Testament. 
And now he is learning, right, about Christ from the apostolic uh, witness of Paul. And uh, Paul tells him, in this notice, in this continuation, historical continuation from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that here you have wisdom for salvation. And this wisdom for salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus. So here is the Christocentric character of the scriptures. is wisdom for salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Hence, it's self-authenticating character. And then we hear verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. By inspiration of God, meaning it is breathed out of God. Scripture is breathed out. It's not that the writer is inspired in the sense of how we talk about, oh, I got some ideas, I got my muse, or I got my groove on, and I put out some sort of a good output, a good inspired performance. That's not the meaning of the inspiration of the scriptures. It is the actual writing that is inspired. And the word for that is the writing of the scriptures is breathed out by God. The very words of scripture is what God gave the men of God that were moved thus by the Holy Spirit to write. So they wrote the very words of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Notice for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete. So complete, mature, lacking nothing. That is the purpose of the scriptures. What do we need to be complete, to be mature? As a believer, the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. That's how you are made complete, meaning mature, lacking nothing. Attaining to the full stature of the measure of Christ. You need the Scriptures to abound in you. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So notice, it's to make you wise for salvation, and that encompasses the transformation of sanctification in your life. So notice again, this is its own validating claim, that the Scriptures accomplish that. They bring this transformation about. All Scripture is given by, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. In... So notice, the scriptures are not a manual of medicine. You're not going to learn in the scriptures the structure of the DNA. Hmm? Or the elements of the table of Mendeleev, right? Is that how you say it? The chemical elements. You're not going to learn in scriptures about quantum physics. You're not going to learn in scriptures about um, politics. You know, and the different ways of organizing a, a society. No, that's not what scripture is about. You're not going to learn in scripture about all the details of geography of the entire world. No. Okay? So it speaks in its own language and literary genres and styles and purpose, right? It speaks also um, in a phenomenological way. What does that mean, that big word? It means it speaks in the way things appear. It's not, it doesn't want to give you scientific exactitude. It's because it's not a scientific book. Okay? So that's why a lot of people sometimes mistake or find errors or this or that, inaccuracies. But the Scriptures are perfect for what God has briefed it out, for what God has inspired it, as we see here. Let's take a look at the Gospel of John. 
John chapter 5. In John 5, we hear, beginning in verse, um, John 5, verse 39. This is Jesus speaking, and he says to the, uh, the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Notice, he's speaking to Jews, right? You search the scripture, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Indeed, the scriptures are redemptive. We find eternal life in them. But we only find eternal life in them insofar as we find Christ in them. Because the scriptures reveal Christ. And that is the point with the Pharisees. They were not receiving the witness of Christ. Now receiving the witness of Christ, they were not the Scriptures and the Word of God found no place in them. It found no place in them. So notice what Jesus goes on to say here. So by the way, this is the self-authenticating character of the Scriptures. That they bear witness to Christ. Now, the Pharisees got lost in saying, well, who are you? Well, who validates you, right? I mean, you are the son of Mary and Joseph. Come on. You know, and that is a questionable couple at that. Who are you? What, who, who, you know, it's sort of like saying, hey, give me some letters of reference, right? So the, the reason that you need some letters of reference is that you're not self-validating. <laughs> you don't show up at a, at, a, at a job that you want to, uh, to take and say, here I am, take me. Why? Well, I'm, that's it, because I'm me. Huh? You wouldn't say that. Why? Because you are not self-validating. You need some references. Well, guess what? Jesus and the Scriptures need none. Because they are self-authenticated, self-validating. Do you see the analogy? The illustration? So the Pharisees, they wanted to get some corroboration. And the corroboration was the Word itself. Jesus said, it's the Word that testifies of me and the works that I do. And the works that I do. If you don't believe me, believe me by the works that I do. These were the works that had been prophesied that Messiah would do. And the power of the kingdom that was in front of their very own eyes. Jesus did not need any other authentic outside source of authenticating or validation. See... What today's charismatic church wants to do in the name of the Spirit, they, are still, they still want to validate the Christian message with signs and wonders. You see? This is a very good point. I had not prepared that point, but it just hit me that this is a very important observation. God had prophesied that the kingdom would come with signs and wonders. Okay? The kingdom through uh, Christ and then the ministry of the apostles to lay the cornerstone and the foundation. All of that would be testified through signs and wonders that followed, that followed them. Okay? So, once all of this has come, and it's been testified to in keeping with the Scriptures, as we read last week, the Apostle Paul. Now we have the foundation on the cornerstone that is Christ. We do not need validating signs and wonders for the message that we preach. That would mean that somehow... The kingdom is, has either is coming or needs to be authenticated. And that the scriptures are not sufficient as breathed out of God. You see that? In other words, if we would still need to bring in 
and to perform signs and wonders for people to believe us, that would mean that we do not have the scriptures that testify to Christ. And we would need to say like Christ, if you don't believe me, believe me by what? By my signs and wonders. That's basically what today's charismatic church is saying. Don't just believe what we're saying. Believe us by our signs and wonders. No, that's what Jesus said. And Jesus said it because that's the way that he was going to be captured in Scripture for us to bring a message of a cornerstone and a foundation that was based on the ministry of Christ and the apostles and the signs and wonders that testify to the coming of the kingdom in their ministry. Does that mean that God cannot perform miracles these days? He does not perform them by no means. We're not saying that. What we are saying is that this overemphasis, this main emphasis on signs and wonders and the baptism of the Spirit and tongues and all of these things that today's modern church is caught up in is an assault on the testimony of Scripture. It's actually a sign that they are not functioning on the basis of the authority of Scripture. As much as they may say or use the Scriptures to support their signs and wonders. <laughs> but ultimately, the signs and wonders testify to Christ. And those are the greater works that we would do. What are the greater works that we would do? That we would take this gospel to the, ends, to the end of the world. Take it to the end of the world. And that the whole world would come to see Jesus and to be saved. The whole world speaking, right? All the nations would come. And all the impediments and the obstacles and the um, hindrances of Satan would be overcome by the preaching of the gospel, by the keys of the kingdom that we would now handle. And how do we do it? In the proclamation, in the faithful proclamation and teaching of the revealed Word of God that testifies to Christ, as he says here, right? Um, notice once again, Let's, let's pick it up in verse um, 38. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Notice, you don't have the word abiding in you because you did not believe in Christ. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life you see, I do not receive honor from men. Notice, what were they looking for? References. Well, we know Rabbi so-and-so and Rabbi so-and-so learned from Rabbi so-and-so. And they have these recommendations and we're in the circle of such and such a teacher. What about you? Where do you come from, Right? Jesus says, I do not receive honor from men. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. See? You do not have self-authenticating character of Scriptures. It is the Scriptures that producing you by the testimony of Christ, the love of God. It's that self-validating, Right? You do not have the love of God. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Notice, in his own name, which basically means in the name of men, in the applause of men, in the honor of men. I notice how interesting this here now. Verse 44, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Okay, now verse 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. 
Moses in whom you trust. So notice, we spoke of the historical covenantal character of the scriptures for them as, a, as an evidence of the self-validating character of the scriptures, all the New Testament. Every redemptive right, move of God, uh, which he revealed to the prophets and had them write, they had a mediator. And how many mediators have there been? Well, in the case of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant had one mediator. Who was that? Moses. The Mosaic Covenant had Moses. The law had Moses as a mediator. But that was not God's final word, remember? We've been talking about Christ in the Old Testament. We hear in the book of Deuteronomy that God is going to raise a greater prophet. Him you will hear. And that greater prophet was now in front of them. That was Christ. And he was the mediator of a new covenant. Of a new covenant. So within the self-validating character of Scripture is this historical covenantal covenantal um, progressive history from old to new, right? From law to gospel, from Moses to Christ, from Israel to the church. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Notice, that's why we say that Christ is in the Old Testament. Moses wrote about me. That's why the scriptures have a self-authenticating character and it bears the divine qualities within itself. And it's that union that Jesus says in John 10, the scriptures cannot be broken. So there is a harmony, there is a continuity and it's this harmony and continuity of redemptive activity on the part of God that is covenantal, that is on the basis of mediators, and that leads to fulfillment and culmination in Christ Jesus. That is why I think these are the factors, the elements that go into the Scriptures as self-authenticating, self-validating. You cannot go outside of the scriptures to learn, to receive, and to be shaped by these truths. Right? If you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote about me. Verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, oh, the writings of Moses, so there is such a thing as an Old Testament canon. The writings, of, in this case... The Torah, the law, as we will see next week. We're going to get a little bit into some of these internal testimonies of Scripture to itself as inspired of God, as the very Word of God. If you do not believe His writings, how will you believe my words? So notice, writings here in the Old Testament... There's a canon there. There's a word of God that is being revealed there. It has to do with God's acts of redemption for the people of Israel. But that was a precursor and a prefigurement covenantally leading to a better, a greater um, mediator, greater covenant in fulfillment and then completion of the Word of God. Why is there not new prophecy today? Because there is no other redemptive move of God. God is not going to intervene for any further redemptive movements. There is no third wave. There's no new apostolic wave of prophecy. That it's all an attack on the sufficiency of this canon of the revelation of the Word of God. God moved in history. God revealed His acts. 
God sealed both covenants in, the, in, its, in their different ways. And the new covenant was the culmination, the fulfillment of all the hopes and the promises and the words that were written in the first and under the first covenant. <clears throat> so I think we could stop there tonight. It's 8.05. Any, let's stop there. Any questions?